It's Thursday, January 18th, 2024. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Houthis, terrible people. But for the past few years, not terrorist people. But after a few rounds of bonafide terrorizing, they are back on the United States terrorist list. Well, not the worst terrorist list. Did you know the U.S. has two lists, the specially designated global terrorist list, which sounds bad, but it's less the list of terrorists than the list of the terrorish, because there's also the foreign terrorist organization list. And if you thought the specially designated global terrorists were special, the FTOs are really special. That's where you'll find Al-Qaeda, your various ICs, and Hamas, but not for now, the Houthis. The Biden administration, when they came into power, did take the Houthis off the list. They delisted them, but now they think it's wise to put them back on at least one list, sort of like being shortlisted for a Booker Prize. It's an honor just to be nominated type situation. The Houthis are jihadists, and therefore they are engaged in a struggle. But it is the opposite of a struggle that characterizes the dreamy Houthi, who went viral for being so easy on the eyes. Yes, a terrorist dreamboat who literally boarded Houthi hijacked boats in the Red Sea has been nicknamed Tim Houthi Chalamet. He does look a lot like Timothy Chalamet does Tim Houthi Chalamet. I gotta say, I love that name so much. It almost makes it all all right, but it does not. It almost, I am giving the guy a shout out even though he's on the specially designated global terrorist list. But Tim Houthi Chalamet, real name Rashid Al-Haddad, who's 19, identifies as a pirate, not as a Houthi for the record, though he engaged in Houthi, I'm going to say terrorists, certainly hijack activities, and he says he longs for martyrdom. He got more than a shout out. He was treated to a full interview through a translator with Hassan Piker, who is a very, very popular Twitch streamer and Zionism antagonist. Haddad says he does not know who Timothy Chalamet is, but Piker asked about other Western media influences. We took out some of the translation for time. But what did he watch uh, when he was younger? What is he like? Uh, Tom and Jerry, SpongeBob, Smurfs. Piker then asked the young pirate about the Houthis' efforts to, say, span cultural differences. What does he think about China? Does he know anything about China? He's saying he hasn't spent much time with Chinese people, but one of the captains, the captain was Chinese and he did caught with them and he uh, uh, danced some music with them and he was vibing. So he, 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 he likes him. Yeah. <laughs> so what, I mean, what, <laughs> that's so crazy. So they're just chilling with the captains. Like, I don't understand. No, you don't understand. They kidnapped the crew and have been holding them at gunpoint ever since. But a fun time was had by all. A meme took flight, a Twitch streamer got great content, and a group of terrorists are back on the list that they need to be on, like Dark Side of the Moon and how it never should have fallen off Billboard's catalog albums chart in the first place. Couple grave injustices there. There is no telling where international heartthrob Tim Houthi Chalamet will land next Although if the U.S. telemetry gets any better, perhaps it will be a pineapple in the bottom of the sea. On the show today, it is a full show without a spiel, but a full show with a renowned researcher, Bessel van der Kolk. Van der Kolk is the author of the 2015 book, The Body Keeps the Score, 
Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. This is one of those books that has never fallen off the list. He recently published a piece in Foreign Affairs, along with co-author Jessica Stern, terrorism expert. It was titled, The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict and the Psychology of Trauma, How Insights from Therapeutic Practice Can Help Build Peace. Bessel van der Kolk up next. The conflict in Gaza has been analyzed from many perspectives, and one that I came across that I thought was fascinating was in Foreign Affairs. It was co-written by Jessica Stern and Bessel van der Kolk, and it was titled The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict and the Psychology of Trauma, How Insights from Therapeutic Practice Can Help Build Peace. Who better to talk about this than Bessel van der Kolk, a psychiatric researcher and author of The Body Keeps the Score. Welcome to The Gist. Hi, good to be here. When you, I'm sure as a news consumer and someone who cares about humanity, you hear about what happens on October 7th, you witness the response, and you must react to it as any human must. But soon, or you tell me, when do your professional instincts and inclinations kick in and you start to look at this as an exchange of traumas? Oh, almost immediately. Uh, I've been to Gaza, I've been to Israel many times, I've been to the West Bank. I consulted to the PLO on the treatment of torture victims on the, the other side. And so, and I grew up among Holocaust survivors. So um, it's all about trauma and it's all about this, the horrible thing that once you get traumatized, you see the world in terms of black and white, us versus them. And then you start this cycle of violence, which I have witnessed personally quite a bit of in that part of the world over the years. And uh, how to keep people to step back and to not go into an automatic uh, retaliation response is a huge issue after a trauma because we are basically wired to fight back and to, uh, to, uh, to do terrible things to people who hurt us. And uh, once that happens, uh, you hurt people, and then they in turn want to hurt you back. And you see this incredible cycle of retaliation um, that doesn't stop usually until some gigantic thing interferes. And like, yeah, um, you know, but I grew up in the Netherlands at the end of the Second World War, and uh, I think the great miracle of our age is the European Union. That people actually stopped their, their fighting and said, we will kill ourselves if we keep going on the same footing as we are. Huh? When you say you grew up among Holocaust survivors, what was the circumstances there? Oh, just, uh, you know, my uh, on either side of where I grew up, there was a reconstituted Holocaust survivor families. And my father was in a German camp also. And so I've been very aware of this from the very beginning of my existence, basically, you know. Was he a soldier? Why was he in a camp? My father was, was a very vocal anti-Nazi person, yeah. Oh. And when you consulted for the PLO on treatment of prisoners, whose prisoners? Uh, no, torture survivors. So I consulted at Makassar Hospital in East Jerusalem 
on how to treat people who had been uh, involved in intifada and then had been tortured in Israeli prisons. Tortured in Israeli prisons. And I, of course, I know both sides uh, relatively well, actually. Uh, yeah. So I, I have to say, I read your account, which isn't, uh, which isn't written in uh, academic jargon. It's very accessible. And I appreciated the fact that the language you used wasn't uh, specifically, ta- you didn't use words like genocide. Uh, I believe you just avoided words like intifada. There weren't, uh, um, you might object to this word, there weren't triggering phrases. It was pretty neutral. Uh, was that by design? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, in that, you know, Jessica, who was Clinton's terrorism advice. Jessica Stern, your co-author, yes. That's how we got to know each other. And uh, we both are very sympathetic to both sides of the coin and understand them very well. And uh, we we just weep for, uh, for this continued cycle of violence that, uh, in, if anything, gets worse and worse. Huh? Um, and and it's just a critical step back at some point to say, what can we do to stop the killing? Well, let, let's jump to that. Yeah. What is the answer to that? It is very complicated. For example, um, yes, a lot of Palestinians crossed into Israel and were suicide bombers, and so the Israelis built a wall. And totally understandable, but the wall is a horrendous thing in which uh, a whole people really have been cut off from the rest of the world and cut off from options. And So the wall inflicts trauma. Well, it, it protects against trauma on the one hand, on the other right. hand. Right, this, this is why I raised it. Yeah, it's supposed yeah. to do one thing for one side and the other thing for the other side, but it is supposed to be more neutral and less aggressive. It is a wall. I'm sure there's some analogy to psychological right. uh, walls, but you know, it is both trauma-inducing but also supposedly protective. So what is someone to do if they're trying to protect from uh, attacks? There, are, of course, are no simple answers, but... I think the issue of justice here is terribly important. That the same rules should apply for all parties. Uh, all parties should have a basic sense of respect for their position. Um, and uh, that has not been happening. That usually doesn't happen under these conditions because might makes right. And people s- search for power rather than for coexistence. It's interesting. I was in on the, uh, now called the West Bank, in, I think, 1989, while the PLO was in Tunis. And it was a time of peace, and uh, we paid with Saudi reals, and we paid with Syrian money, and it felt for a moment that uh, Israel could be part of the Middle East and be a vital part of that basically Semitic community that's living in the in the Middle East. Huh? Um and then people got polarized again. So the big question is, how can you stop the polarization? And what Jessica and I left out of our article, because it's just too hard to even begin to go there, if both of you rely on a holy book that tells you that you are always right and everybody else is always wrong, that makes it a very hard bargaining position. Mm-hmm. How can, if I were to talk to a Palestinian, maybe not even a member of Hamas, and I were to say, well, you should respect the Israeli side, I I, I would imagine I would get an answer that 
invoked the Nakba and invoked the occupation, and it would ask, how can I respect them? Same to the Israeli. You should respect uh, the, not even the Palestinians, but the Hamas fighters who attacked you. How could I respect them, what they did to 1,200 Israelis? What is, See, is the but, answer to absorb and to sidestep, or what is the answer to those very I don't think it's how it goes, actually, because I have a, a number of good Palestinian friends who are, uh, who are very respectful of the existence of Israel. And to con- conflate Hamas with the Palestinians and to conflate uh, the present Israeli government with the Jews is really a a mistake. We are dealing with two two very extreme factions of people who are suffering. Yeah, but I I know Palestinians in that camp too, but that's not right now who Israel is waging war against. And the same goes uh, the other way. So even though there are the presence of the reasonable, what it's do you do? Yeah. They're, they're indiscriminately bombing uh, a people, uh, uh, which is really an invitation to create a new bunch of terrorists. When, you, when, when I've gone to Gaza, I can completely understand that these people are so trapped and have such a limited options in their lives, that you grow up being very angry and feeling very discriminated against. And of course, bombing people indiscriminately will is, is ensure, ensuring that you'll have more generations of, of terrorists. Right. Mm-hmm. So, th- so the Israelis would say we're not being indiscriminate, although when you use 2,000 pound bombs in an urban area, it's hard to gainsay the idea of being indiscriminate. And in fact, on a couple of these missions, they have admitted or at least acknowledged that they uh, might have gone overboard. And that's just what they acknowledge. So what you're saying, and you don't want to get into uh, these fine details, you're pointing out that no matter what the IDF or Israeli politicians say is necessary or not necessary, please realize that you could call it indiscriminate, but when it's what experienced is indiscriminate or what any reasonable observer would say is indiscriminate, it's going to have these traumatic effects? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you really are creating uh, a group of people who are desperate at the end of the rope who have nothing to lose anymore. Yeah. So I don't think, I mean, I can't speak for the far right of Israel, but I don't think the Israelis don't think that that's true. I think that uh, from those in power who I've talked to, their philosophy is that is true. We are probably turning people against us. And yet of the horrible choices we have to make, it is the only way to actually uproot the very faction that hurt us. So even if they were just unthinking, unfeeling robots, and they had a set of bad choices before them, they, knowing that they would create some trauma or much trauma, would still go about doing what they had to do to try to uproot Hamas, and that would cause some civilian casualties. They're trying to minimize that. So, you know, they get Bessel van der Kolk in there, and they say, look, we want to do this as best we can. Uh, how How do we achieve our objectives militarily, or do we just have to put them aside? You see, uh, I have, I I talk to people in Israel uh, several times a week, actually, and most Israelis who I know do not support the government in what they're doing. 
Uh, so to to put lump everywhere together and say all Israelis, no, it's a very no. But that's a, that's a problem because public opinion polls say that most Israelis do support the yeah. the actions of the government. I mean, I, I don't doubt that the ones you talk to who are particularly involved in maybe longstanding peace processes disagree, and maybe they have be- they probably do have better insight as to trauma. But I'm saying if you're talking to the people who have determined that it is a horrible choice, but the choice they have to make, what's the argument that you would make to try to convince them against that choice? Um, you know, there is there's a core human issue. And that is that if you want to be a moral person, and I think Judaism is very much a moral religion, you become a person who stands for social justice, and you stand for uh, justice in this world, basically. And that's the argument, is that you don't want to become a perpetrator of horrendous violence that destroys people on either side. Huh? And so there's a. it's interesting to me how little people talk about morality in the last eight years or so. Huh? Uh, and that we are moral people. We are people with values. We are people who are opposed to killing, and we are people who are opposed to discrimination. And uh, if you violate the moral rules, you become an immoral person. Everybody knows that Hamas was immoral, and nobody is making excuses for Hamas. Um, But if you start bombing people indiscriminately, you also become immoral. Yeah. Well, obviously, plenty of people, no good people are making excuses for Hamas, but plenty of people are. But I want to, so here would be an argument, and I don't think it's an unfair argument. This is, in fact, probably the main uh, conception of the Israeli public. Hamas has to be taken out in order, or whatever that means, Uh, their capacity to kill us has to be degraded in the name of morality, in the name of the moral mission, the moral obligation of a government to protect its people. And Hamas uses human shields as a tactic, and they know that it will implicate the morality of the attackers and complicate that. But if we don't do that, they have vowed they're going to attack us again and again and again. So we're not looking at the morality of tomorrow. We're looking at the next few years. And if we allow the tactic of human shields to succeed, it's not that we're allowing them to one-up us. It's that we're seriously endangering the lives of our people. Is that just a trap, a trap way of thinking, a way to justify trauma? Or is there um, something to that? You know, I, I, I really, I don't see it that way. Um, you know, the, the amazing thing is that the plans were known. Now, Israel knows how to defend itself. What happened that... Uh, Hamas was able to break out of Gaza in the first place. I think we need to do have some very serious looking at how that was possible. As a person who has been there many times, who knows how extremely difficult it is for anybody to cross those borders, what happens? And I, I you know that I think we need to look at that. Uh, was there something that the right wing Israeli government allowed this to happen? Uh, the Israeli government supported Hamas in order to undermine the PLO in the West Bank very actively. And so I think we need to look at, uh, at a much more complex issue of to what degree was what happened a creation of both sides. 
Where, do you mean consciously, unconsciously, the Israeli government allowed it to happen? Well, I don't want to go into into a conspiracy, conspiracy theory, but, you know, it is for me as a frequent visitor to those places, I mean, it's pretty odd that Hamas was able on October 7th to massively cross the borders from Gaza. I cannot help but wonder if the Israeli government um, was willing to tolerate such a provocation in order to uh, to take out Hamas. That does sound conspiratorial. It does, doesn't it? Yes. So I'm being careful saying that, but it is a pretty weird thing that happened there. Knowing how incredibly security-minded Israel is and how hard it is to come in and out of Israel from any side, that these borders, that border was left wide open to an organization that everybody knows are a bunch of terrorists. Uh-huh. I don't know. Was Sometimes terrorists are able to achieve pretty spectacular missions. Take 9-11 or yep. just I could point to a lot of things that terrorists have achieved because they're desperate and willing. Um, also, doesn't that, if that's true, it sort of absolves us from some of the hard questions I've been considering. Uh, yeah, it would certainly implicate Israeli leadership a lot more. It does. They, there was a clear, serious dereliction of duty there. That's true, but that doesn't mean it was willful. Well, okay, um, we cannot judge that, huh? but uh, you need to pay attention to that at least. Okay. Um, to what degree is this a situation that actually may be welcomed by the right wing in Israel? Okay. Um yeah, I'm just going to, for the record, say I doubt that, but even and even if it was welcomed by the right wing, I don't know that it would be welcomed by the people actually in charge of that. We don't know. Okay. You mentioned uh, when the PLO was in Tunisia. That's interesting because that was during a bit of a lull comparatively. And then in 1985, Israel did attack PLO leadership in Tunisia and sparked a new wave and new cycle. And part of the reason for this, which is a reason why Israel uh, took out a Hamas commander in Beirut, despite the costs, is that they have the philosophy of settling accounts. And this goes after Black September and the kidnappings of the Berlin Olympics. And I understand that uh, militarily, geopolitically, as a strategy to signal to one's enemies that we will eventually track you down. Is that inherently trauma-inducing? Should governments not do that? Would no, you say? of course, governments should do that. The, the job of a government is to make your people safe. Yes. And uh, I think most of us really admire the Mossad and how it has been able to pin, do some pinpointing of terrorists. But what happened in Gaza was a different story. Uh, uh, that pinpoint security stuff suddenly broke down and they knew what was happening and nothing was being done to stop it. That is Bessel van der Kolk. And after the break, I'm going to do a little more pushback on some of what van der Kolk just said.
And we are back with Bessel van der Kolk talking about trauma and war. And when we left off, van der Kolk had reiterated his feeling that the Israeli government might have had a hand in some way in the wide-scale breach of the security wall. We'll pick it up there. Saying that, I do think gets us off the hook, or believing that gets us off the hook a little too much. I think that there are complicated, almost unable to answer questions like I said, about what do you do when one side effectively uses human shields and it puts you in a terrible position? And if you were to say, well, you're the ones who allowed that and what the right really wants is to indiscriminately kill Palestinians, it becomes a less complicated choice. So I do want to go back to that. What if Hamas were allowed to essentially succeed and escape because there was the conception that we can't continue inflicting trauma. Wouldn't that not only spell the doom of Israeli society, but all other governments signaling to the world that this tactic of human shields is so effective that we won't strike out against it? Look, the job of government is to keep its people safe. Yes. And they failed at that, huh? Um, They failed by... Uh, keep, keeping that border porous. And the, the, for me, this is the tragedy of what I see in the West Bank. There are these walls that are that make it into an apartheid state. That's actually the case. I can totally understand why Israel had to do that. Uh, uh, but then to follow that up by settling uh, Palestinian territories in the West Bank and letting settlers roam freely and brutalize Palestinians, that's an important story. And that should not be ignored. If you continue to to uh, provoke people and hurt people and treat them in uh, inferior human beings, they will become very angry. And you can expect that sooner or later, they'll fight back. Yeah. And sacrifice themselves. And there happens to be also in Islam, a certain culture of martyrdom that is alien to us as Jewish and Christian people. But there is a culture of martyrdom uh, that is part of the whole issue. And so you need to negotiate with people who actually are not into martyrdom. And so you bolster the, the moderates on the other side, which has not happened, uh, Israel has systematically uh, really undermined Palestinian authority and uh, not allowed leadership, moderate leadership to emerge there. Yeah. So belief in martyrdom is an obstacle to ultimate peace. It's a huge issue. Yeah. Uh, and how do you deal with that? You deal with it by very severe limits. You don't allow people to cross the border. Huh? And you don't allow the settlers to go run rampant in on the West Bank. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. So for the record, if uh, apartheid does exist, and I think it's just mostly uh, misapplied in Israel Actually, almost I entirely. I spent a lot of time in South Africa also, and most part of the... Yeah, me too. Uh, apartheid was, a, you know, a racial system. But yeah, I will agree that... and. Scholars have agreed that in the West Bank, there are aspects to uh, the Israeli uh, occupation there that certainly could be called apartheid. But I just wanted to note that. And I note that you didn't write apartheid in your article on foreign affairs. 
So I just interviewed Yaroslav Timonov, who uh, Wall Street Journal chief correspondent, wrote an excellent book on Ukraine. And what came across there, there were details about battles I didn't know, but the will of the Ukrainians shocked everybody, surprised everybody. But as I'm talking to you, I'm thinking, you know, their rage, perhaps their trauma actually, well, you tell me, propels them to continue the fight against the Russians. And without that, you know, I, maybe you would say that trauma only gets in the way and there is a righteous rage that doesn't bleed into trauma. But to me, it seems so interconnected. Um, I guess my question is, can the very stuff that creates trauma also have an effect of helping a war effort, actually helping it? Oh, absolutely. So your brain gets wired to deal with extreme situations. So once you're traumatized people, it's very likely that you are very good in situations where there is very high danger. And one of the pieces of research that uh, Ruth Lanius, one of my former students, did, who's a great neuroscientist now, uh, was to show that when you're traumatized, when there's peace, your brain isn't functioning. But if under very situations of great stress, your brain can stand up to the plate better than other people. Yeah. So you get rewired for very high intensity situations, but you cannot go shopping in the supermarket and take care of your kids anymore. Yeah. That was, uh, I, was it in Zero Dark Forty? There was, what was the, there was one movie that, uh, with Jeremy Renner that showed that exactly. The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker. He's in the supermarket. He just is, yeah, he's like, he's uh, divorced from himself. He's not even experiencing life, but he goes back into war and things become meaningful. Our job, me, my job as a psychiatrist is to help people to rewire themselves for peace. Yeah. yeah. But what do you do during war? I mean, would you tell or uh, would you tell a Ukrainian fighter on the front line who is trying to save his country to be less rageful, to no. in the moment think of things no. different? Okay, go ahead. No, no. But, but I, but I tell people in Ukraine is stay active, stay involved, move cook for each other, help each other, be, feel that you are not completely helpless. Uh, and it's very important to keep your organism involved and engaged when you're terrified and when you're rich, rather than uh, slumping and uh, shutting down, uh, because that's the long-term effect of trauma, is that you, you, you give up. And you give up on yourself and everything around you. And so, um, yeah, I would certainly not tell Ukrainian uh, people to stop fighting. Um, and uh, on, on the contrary, actually. No, no, I don't mean stop fighting. I mean the rage that the fighter actually has. In the moment, can the soldier think of things differently or conceptualize things? It happens afterwards. Huh? It's afterwards. Yeah. Uh, that's what you see that after every war, uh, that people come home, they're, they're called heroes. They don't feel like heroes. They feel like broken people. Yeah. Right. And and to bring it back finally to Israel and Palestinian, it's what happens afterwards, but what happens before. And the strain of what I'm hearing in your conversation that we disagree on certain points is that there are consequences to the actions of both sides. And there are consequences to carrying out Operation Wooden Leg, which was the strike against the PLO in Tunisia. And there are actions yeah. to either not properly or why ever the, uh, the border wall was built and the border was breached. These are consequences and they will 
inevitably lead to exactly what your area of expertise is, trauma and, you know, re-engaging in these uh, patterns of violence. That's a, so the issue uh, for both sides is that people need to have hope. Uh, and people need to think that, yes, right now I'm suffering and now, right now things are, are terrible, but when this is over, we will have a free country or my kids will go to a good school and my kids will be safe and my sacrifices right now are worth it. And the, from the Palestinian point of view, that hope has not been there for a very long time. Bessel van der Kolk is the author, along with Jessica Stern, of an article in Foreign Affairs called The Israeli-Palestinian Conflict and the Psychology of Trauma. He is the author of The Body Keeps the Score. Thank you so much, Professor van der Kolk. Thank you. Good talking with you. Pesca Plus subscribers will hear another line of questioning I threw the professor's way. I wanted to know about things like trauma-informed glass blowing. You may chuckle. It is a thing. I wanted to know exactly what this is and what the professor thinks about it. You could become a Pesca Plus subscriber and get extras like this each week. It is affordable. It supports the show in a big way. It's free, actually. To try out for a week, go to subscribe.pescaplus.com and join. And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by the quaint Mallards, Corey Wara, Gist producer, and Joel Patterson, Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peachfish Productions. To advertise, go to advertisecast.com slash the Gist, Peru, Peru, Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>